It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning, this episode contains discussion of the murder of two children. So today is November 22nd, 2022. We are recording this from the West Lafayette Library in West Lafayette, Indiana, And we've just come from the public access hearing in the case of Richard M. Allen, uh, who, of course, stands accused of killing Libby German and Abby Williams in the Delphi murders case. So we'll be taking you through our entire morning to give you a better picture of what exactly happened. But uh, to single out a few important topics that we will be covering, we'll be uh, discussing the prosecution's uh, sort of stated theory of the case as alluded to in this hearing, which is that there may have been more than one person participating in the, in the murders. 
will tell you about seeing Richard Allen in person. Uh, we actually were in the same room with him. He was there at the hearing. We'll tell you our opinion of how the prosecution did in court today and our opinion of the defense counsel. And we will also be talking about the fact that uh, the prosecution asked for a gag order to be issued in this case. What does that mean? Who does it cover? We'll discuss all of that today. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the murder sheet, and this is... The Delphi Murders, Richard Allen's Public Access Hearing. So we actually spent last night in Lafayette. We drove up ahead of time, got a hotel room so we could be here nice and early, not have to wake up too extremely early. <laughs> we still woke up pretty early, though. Because um, there was only a very few number of seats available in the courtroom, and none of them were being held in reserve for press. It was entirely first come, first serve. So we got up at like, what? 5 15 a.m. Mm-hmm. and got ready went to the courthouse we were not the first people there there were a number of reporters there ahead of us about six or seven reporters ahead of us yeah so we you know we were, we were in the top 10 but we ended up uh, just sort of on the sort of wheelchair ramp going into the franklin street side of the courthouse which i want to say is a beautiful building as we waited outside in the cold i remember that we saw a couple of police officers leading a police dog all around the perimeter of the courthouse. Yeah, not only was there a heavy law enforcement presence here, there were um, you know, representations from a number of different agencies, including notably there were a lot of ISP troopers, Indiana State Police troopers, and there were a lot of people there from the Carroll County Sheriff's Department. So they were all there to sort of maintain security, maintain the perimeter, and that, of course, was very important because, as we all knew, Richard M. Allen was going to be brought to the courthouse. So safety is very paramount here. And um, this is not something, I mean, typically when we've gone into the Carroll County Courthouse, you've not had to go through metal detectors or anything like that. But today was going to be different. Um, 
very, very serious tone, very, uh, you know, very strict orders. And we were out there for, you know, a, a while. About an hour and a half. It was pretty cold, um, but we were happy to wait. And, uh, you know, it kind of, there were only a few people there at first, and then it started to fill out. We saw different folks from YouTube that we know. We saw different folks from um, other new media. We saw um, traditional reporters from stations and, and different papers and things like that. And, um, you know, we also watched um, as uh, some family members of Libby and Abby walked in. Uh, they they were allowed in first, obviously. And, um, you know, they they arrived early as well. Uh, we saw different law enforcement officials throughout our time there, but it was definitely a pretty uh, intense presence and an intense kind of concentration as well of media attention for sure. When we finally got into the courtroom and got settled, uh, Tol Blesenby came out and very loudly told everybody that it was important to be quiet. He said that in addition to the decorum rules that the judge issued, she wanted there to be complete silence during the hearing and that anyone who did not abide by that would be uh, required to leave. And that was just another indication that this is a tough judge who really maintains pretty strict control of her court. Yeah, she. this is a, this is a judge who's not going to tolerate any nonsense from anybody. Uh, Tobles and B, of course, being the outgoing Sheriff of Carroll County. Uh, we also saw incoming Sheriff Tony Liggett there. He was at the door. Um, and, and so, you know, just kind of seeing familiar faces, people who've been part of this investigation for a long time, sort of popping up. And, you know, basically, once the doors opened, it kind of was a rush. Um, you know, everyone starts moving in. As Kevin said, we we're kind of like, you know, six and seven in line. So we were in pretty quickly. Uh, you know, they had you put all your stuff in your, from your pockets in a bowl. They kind of searched that. They were looking through people's bags. Um, I, you know, took off my like heavy coat and like scarf. So I looked kind of, you know, my hair was getting crazy. And, you know, they basically have you lift your arms up so they can kind of scan you with the wand to make sure you're not armed. Um, so they were taking no chances. You had to walk through a metal detector. It was very, um, you know, it, it felt pretty efficient, but it was definitely very, you know, TSA-esque, uh, which is understandable, again, because the big thing everyone's waiting for is seeing Richard Allen. What's that going to be like? And shortly after I mentioned Till Blesenby coming into the courtroom and making his announcement, shortly after that, Richard Allen did indeed come in. Do you want to describe his appearance? So he is a very short man. I know we sort of knew that from some of the, you know, statements of people who knew him. And also I believe his height was released, but that was the first thing that you sort of noticed about him, how small he is. Um, he had a kind of a scraggly white beard. The first thing I noticed was that he had chains around his uh, upper chest, uh, kind of uh, binding his arms and that his wrists were in front of him in handcuffs. Yes. Um, yes. He's chained. It's kind of clinking as he moves. He's wearing a rumpled yellow jumpsuit, sort of like scrubs almost. And um, I felt some people we talked to afterwards were sort of giving us their assessment. They were saying, you know, he looked pretty scared. I could definitely see that. But my initial thought was he almost looked embarrassed. 
he kind of had this like look. He was he was definitely scanning, you know, like looking kind of not really at anybody, but almost like through the crowd a little bit. Um, and I just had this kind of I could I the the look that it reminded me of is like someone who's embarrassed, somebody who knows they're being watched. Uh, and that was sort of my assessment. Did you have an assessment of his sort of expression or manner? I didn't really see much in his manner or expression. I know what you said. I know what other people said. Uh, to me, he just seemed to be a person who was trying to keep his face expressionless. So I didn't really read anything in that myself. Yeah, it was It was certainly not. Um, either way, he was not emoting much. Now, he... He was led to the yeah. uh, defense table. Uh, directly behind him were two officers. I assume they were officers. They were wearing bulletproof vests with the word police written on the back of them. And they each had earpieces in their ear, much like you'd see a Secret Service officer wear. And notably, he was also wearing a flak jacket. He was wearing a bulletproof vest, a black bulletproof vest beneath the chains over the jumpsuit, over the prison uniform. I guess clearly uh, they don't want a Jack Ruby type of situation here. No, and it, this is such a high-profile case. It's elicited so much attention, so much outcry that I can understand why they're taking extra precautions to keep the defendant safe in this case because, you know, I think you and I both, uh, when Judge Benjamin Diener, the previous judge on this case, wrote something about bloodlust and saying that he was in danger from the public, you and I both thought that was, you know, written in a somewhat over-the-top way. But the general sentiment, you know, it's the state's rep- responsibility to keep this person safe while while this trial is going on. So it was definitely very thorough, and it felt organized. It didn't feel like the whole thing was out of control or was it – I mean, it could have turned into a circus had these precautions not taken place. But I felt like the strictness with which everything was handled prevented that somewhat and kind of kept things flowing in an orderly manner. So I think that was something that was very clear. And I think that's something we could probably expect from this judge going forward that, you know, it's her courtroom. She's tough. She's not going to brook any nonsense and everyone's going to have to follow the rules or they can leave. Or in in the case of, as she sort of memorably put it, uh, or as she sort of memorably noted as uh, Judge Gall sort of sat down was that, you know, if your phone goes off, they're not just going to confiscate it. They're going to destroy destroy it, it, which is like pretty intense. And I think we're all like, whoa, okay, (laughs) mute your cell phones. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that that kind of underscores the kind of the tone that we're striking here. So on uh, the right side of Alan sat his defense attorney, uh, Mr. Baldwin, he draped his arm around the back of the chair that Alan was seated in and would often like lean over and whisper things into Alan's ear. On Alan's left side sat his other defense attorney, Mr. Rosie, and it would be Mr. Rosie who would be speaking on Alan's behalf once the hearing began. But the first person to speak other than the judge was the prosecutor. Nicholas McClelland. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was there representing the state, you know, Carroll County. He's the prosecutor on this case. And it was his job today, given that it was a public access hearing. The stakes were essentially the state wants to keep the probable cause affidavit 
underscoring the some of the evidence against Richard Allen, they want to keep it sealed. And it was his job to basically say, here's why. He's the guy that basically asked for it to be sealed in the first place. And he was the guy that convinced the previous judge, Judge Diener, to agree to it being sealed for at least 30 days or so. And the defense um, was basically responsible for weighing in how they how they saw fit on whether or not they wanted it sealed or not. And then, of course, the judge um, is going to make the decision ultimately. Uh, McClelland started by saying that he felt that the extraordinary circumstances of this case justified restricting access. And then he said he had a few exhibits to present to the court. Uh, And these exhibits were not shared with the public. The first two exhibits were affidavits. The first was from uh, Jerry Holman from the state police. Uh, Who was the second one from? The second affidavit was with a investigator with the prosecutor's office. I didn't catch his name. I wrote down Steve Moland, but if you're a listener and you know who this person is, shoot us an email. So the contents of these affidavits were not made available to the public, but the prosecutor did characterize the content of those affidavits, and he said that basically both these investigators uh, explained in these documents that they felt releasing the information in the probable cause affidavit would actually damage the investigation. Uh, He had a third exhibit. The third exhibit was a letter from Becky Patty, who, of course, is the grandmother of the victim, uh, Liberty German. And the guardian? Yes. And this letter, uh, he said, expressed her view that the probable cause affidavit should remain sealed. And his fourth and final exhibit was the online petition that perhaps uh, many of you listening today may have signed, uh, indicating that the signers believe that it should remain sealed. Yeah, which attracted around, I think he said, 40,000 signatures from around the country. Uh, McClelland uh, acknowledged that uh, there was not a lot of a precedent for how to handle a hearing like this. Uh, And that's basically because this is not something that happens a lot. Generally speaking, prosecutors do not go to the extreme step of sealing a probable cause affidavit. He indicated he had two concerns which led him to want to keep it sealed. The first concern was, and this we want to underscore because we feel like this is a highly significant disclosure from the prosecution, that um, the prosecution feels that there may be other actors involved in the killings. Yes, and so it's important to protect the continuing investigation. He said it's still a very ongoing investigation. We want to find anyone else involved. He said, quote, he said there is, quote, good reason to believe, unquote, that others are involved in this crime. Yes. there. Yeah, he said that. There is. This is still a very ongoing investigation. Our goal is to find anybody else involved in this heinous crime. I mean, that's huge. That is that is a that is incredibly telling. We've been sort of alluding to this on the podcast and noting that investigators are saying it's not over. Doug Carter, the Indiana State Police Superintendent, got up at the conference and said, "We still need the public's help. It's not over." Now we have the prosecutor saying we. There may be other actors involved. 
And at the very least, they feel that strongly enough that they are wanting to keep the investigation still somewhat secretive. So that underscores how much it's, I don't, I don't think you do that for an idle theory of, Oh, well perhaps maybe somebody else knew about something. This is something that they're actively looking into. Yeah. Very important. The other element of this that they want, um, you know, have concerns about is the element of witnesses named in the affidavit. So these are people whose names are coming into it. And he says he wants to protect those witnesses, protect their safety. He actually complained about uh, the media's interest in this case. He said that when people's names get out, the media wants to get information about them. He specifically complained about the media trying to get information on Richard Allen by talking to people who knew him. And he uh, did, didn't want to put other witnesses in that situation. He also talked about witnesses who may have been juveniles at the time of the crime uh, or who may even be juveniles now. He said these people should be able to focus on college or whatever and not have to worry about being contacted by the media. He said, look at the amount of security we have had. We have we have today, Judge. So he's kind of underscoring that this is um, you know a very intense situation and that they don't want to put people in jeopardy. And he actually elaborated on that because he said uh, the prior judge in this case actually recused himself because he feared for his own safety. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, I thought he made some good points about witnesses, to be honest. But I, I think I felt that uh, the, the Diener po- thing is kind of more like that seems more like a Diener problem. <laughs> yeah, I never saw any evidence that the judge Diener was actually in any real harm. I think it's understandable for a judge who's not used to being in the public eye to maybe have a lot of anxiety about that and feeling maybe unsafe because suddenly people online are talking about you. I get that from a human level. But from a practical, what are the facts level, I don't think that ever rose to a serious level. And I think it's also worth noting that there was a lot of security at the court today, but it frankly was pretty much a similar level of security that we experienced when we went to the court in Indianapolis. Is a pretty standard level of security in a court. Of course, though, with Carroll County being so small, I think it's just something that's not the norm around here. Um, so it's 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 certainly not unusual for anyone in a in a who goes to a courthouse in a major city, but maybe for a smaller city like Delphi, it's a little bit more. This isn't how it usually is. This is wild. So I think it's just a perspective thing too. But um, yeah. And then uh, McClellan did something I thought was very uh, telling. He basically said, uh, if you guys really, really want to release this probable cause affidavit and you're going to make it happen, uh, I've gone ahead and I've prepared uh, a redacted version where I take out the names of the witnesses. And uh, it felt like that by preparing this redacted version in advance, and going to the extent of giving a copy of it to the judge and to the defense, he was basically acknowledging how he expects this decision to go. Yes, that was telling. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I feel personally sympathetic to uh, wanting to keep this investigation robust and healthy. And 
Um, certainly the indications that police believe more than one person is involved. We don't want just one person going down for this. We want everybody who was involved in this horrible thing to go down for this. Uh, but I feel like maybe the prosecution lost us some of the narrative battle on this because by keeping it so secretive in the beginning and then sort of slowly explaining why and then kind of basically being like, well, it's probably going to get released anyways, you know, maybe maybe the thing to, to have done would be to release a redacted version with maybe a few key paragraphs and names eliminated in the beginning, get the media talking about that, and then move on from there. So just strategically. But, uh, but yeah, that's just my opinion. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roeco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roeco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then uh, the defense attorney, Mr. Rosie, spoke. Yeah, Brad Rosie of Logansport, one of Allen's public defenders. He um, basically wanted the opposite. He said that he and his client want transparency. That basically the norm of the criminal justice system in this country is for probable cause affidavits to be released, and there is no reason to change that. He also uh, sort of opened up by noting that uh, he took issue with the filing of the prosecution 
saying it was deficient on its face. So basically, that means that he was saying the prosecution screwed up and did their paperwork incorrectly. They did it so incorrectly that basically their request was void. Uh, in order, that's basically what he said. We can go into the details of it, but basically, it was that they screwed up. Did he say? I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily know all the legalese. It, was there? Was there like something specific that he was citing that they did wrong? Were they, were they just citing the wrong law or something? Uh, basically, what he said was that when you make a, a request for uh, documents to be sealed in a situation like this. The statements that the uh, parties make need to be verified, and uh, verification happens when a statement is made under penalty of perjury, like you were sworn by a judge or something like that. And he said that in this request that they filed back in October, there were no statements made under penalty of perjury. So he said just by the way they did it, they did it so incorrectly that it was void from the beginning. Yeah, not something that necessarily a lot of lay people would care much about or notice, but but certainly sort of interesting and notable that the defense is kind of, you know, the, the job of a good defense attorney is to poke holes in what the state's doing, essentially. Uh, that's how you create the shadow of a doubt, essentially. And, you know, he was already kind of doing that here. And it's the job of the prosecutor, at the very least, to file paperwork correctly. And if what Rosie was saying was true, it appears that the prosecutor did not do that in this case. I'm not an expert on this area of law, so I don't know. But it seemed to be a pretty uh, compelling argument. He then went on to speak about McClellan was basically saying there's so much public interest in this case that if we release more information, there'd be even more public interest and become even more of a circus. And uh, Rosie said, no, that's not true. Actually, it's just the opposite. He said that the amount of secrecy in this investigation has caused the hype and public interest and speculation in the case to actually increase. And he says that if the document is unsealed, the public will actually see the truth and there'll be no reason to speculate and come up with conspiracy theories and the like. Yes, and he actually quite brutally put it as uh, the public can see the truth. They can see where the expenditure of their tax dollars have gone, which seemed to be kind of a dig at the investigation, indicating that, you know, it wasn't going well. So that was a highly interesting uh, thing for him to say for me because he was essentially kind of implying what was already implied in in the filings yesterday, uh, which is that, the defense is maintaining that the, the case against Allen is weak. We don't know either way because we don't have the probable cause affidavit. And even if we did have the probable cause affidavit, there's usually much more to a case than that. But uh, certainly interesting. We're kind of seeing the tone being set here. Yes. Uh, Rosie went on to say that he had no problem with redacting the names of some of the witnesses. Uh, yes. That seems fair. I want to note that. I want to note that, that that's where they agree with one another, and I agree with them as well, especially juvenile witnesses. I mean, there is a lot of media scrutiny, and it's not just traditional media or or people in the new media. It's kind of people who just follow the case and maybe take things into real life a little bit too much sometimes, where it becomes, you know, messaging people, kind of hounding them, and 
that's a lot for people to deal with, especially juveniles who are not media trained and did not grow up in the public eye. So I think that's something where a lot of people, a lot of reasonable people can agree that that perhaps should be redacted. Uh, the, the prosecutor talked that, you know, people had dealt with threats, including the former judge. Rosie said that, that there is no actual evidence that anyone has been really and truly threatened in this case, he feels that that's been driven largely by social media. He said there's no evidence that there are threats on anyone involved in the case. It's just conjecture and speculation. And he indicated his belief that you would need more than that if you take the step of sealing the probable cause affidavit. I'm going to note one thing about Rosie. He, in my opinion, is correct about the level of secrecy perpetuating public interest and heightening public interest. I think that is true. I think it's also heightened, you know, speculation and and uh, conjecture. So when you create an information vacuum, you know, things kind of rush in to fill the vacuum, and sometimes those things are not very good. And so I think his assessment of the, this case was was fair in, in that sense. I would agree with you. Yeah. He also went on to make a very pragmatic point, which is that in the public hearings that are upcoming in this case, you know, perhaps arguments for a change of venue or perhaps arguments for a bond hearing, how would the defense attorneys be able to go into court and make their arguments while having to dance around the fact that big chunks of the case were being kept sealed? He said they would have to talk in certain ways that would confuse people and would perhaps even invite more speculation, and it would certainly make the job of the defense attorneys harder. I thought that was a compelling argument. What did you think? I thought that was a compelling argument as well. I want to note one thing about the bond hearing. So we mentioned in our last episode on the Delphi case that um, Rosie and Baldwin asked for uh, – Allen to be, you know, released on his own recognizance. And, uh, you know, so there's a sort of a bail hearing set for February. That's been, we'll get to that later, but that's been set all the way down the road. I think the fact that they released that on the eve of this hearing shows a pretty savvy understanding about how to control the narrative that the prosecution thus far has not demonstrated. And so I think that's, I think that's notable. I mean, that was obviously a strategic move. I think you stated that it was just theater. It was theater. It was just, I mean, they knew the bond hearing was not, you know, the bail hearing was not going to be for a while, but they were able to just put that together because that would make people be talking about, you know, maybe this case isn't so strong. I mean, we're not weighing in on the merit of what they're claiming. We're just noting that that is a pretty effective media strategy. Exactly. You know, it doesn't require them to talk to the media or give the media anything other than just, you know, telling a story with their filings. He then uh, made uh, another interesting point. He pointed out that the Indiana State Police had held multiple high-profile press conferences about this case, and that on the, at these press conferences, they had repeatedly asked for help from the public. And he says, and now all of a sudden they're saying, well, we don't want the public to know what's going on. And he said that's almost like the state is talking out of both sides of its mouth. Yes. He also said it's just not accurate in his opinion, having read the probable cause that there are other people involved. I thought that was a little bit odd and interesting. If there 
argument turns out to be Richard Allen had nothing to do with this, then why even comment on the possibility that more than one people are involved? Wouldn't that just be kind of like, there could be, there could be not, it's not our problem, he's just innocent? I guess my understanding of what he was saying was that he was saying that there was nothing in the probable cause affidavit itself. which That directly says other, other people, people are involved. involved. So I think when we ex- when we see the probable cause affidavit, it'll be interesting to see what it says, but it very well could not identify, hey, it's John Doe and Jack Doe who are who are in this. It, it what the prosecution may be fearful of is that there are certain allusions to other people or certain things that details that other actors might pick up on and you know even if they're not directly named because yeah, I mean, that would make sense because, the, you know, law enforcement has to prepare a probable cause affidavit. And you would think if they didn't want to put something in, they would strenuously avoid it unless they had to. Exactly. Uh, with that, uh, Rosie concluded his presentation and the judge asked the prosecutor, Mr. McClelland, if he had any response to make. And he did not. Um, and... The, the judge, uh, the, from there, there were some scheduling things. Uh, the judge and the attorneys discussed when they could get together to discuss uh, bail. Um, and they also talked through when sort of the discovery process, how that would go along. Uh, one one line from Judge Gull that I thought was pretty amusing, uh, or, you know, certainly dark, but sort of telling about, you know, who she is and her role in this uh, she noted that she was in a murder trial every week, uh, just so you know. So she's, she, I mean, her schedule, she picked up this like thick sheaf of papers to indicate her trial calendar for the coming weeks. And, you know, it's pretty thick and really indicates that she's doing a lot of murder trials. So for the public, this is a high profile one, but for her, this is one of many that she's handling. So, um, you know, so they were all figuring that out, and basically, what they decided on was to get back together on February seventeenth, which is, you know, just a few days after the anniversary. So it will be interesting to see everything reconvene around then, when, you know, the the memory of those two girls who were lost is especially kind of in the air because it's that time of year again. And then the judge said that she would take the matter of whether or not to release a probable cause affidavit under advisement and would issue a written decision with uh, all due haste. Uh, so that could mean that her decision might come later today. It might come tomorrow. Who knows when it might come? Yes. Um, and I think, you know, she didn't come into this with her mind made up necessarily. Like there was, there was, there were, you know, these uh, attorneys were both citing different cases to kind of back up their arguments. So, Sounds like she'll have some considering to do. I think we expect at this point something to be released, maybe a redacted version. Um, that would be our expectation, but of course, we could be wrong. Uh, it sort of felt like, though, by by even handing over a redacted copy, McClelland was, you know, acquiescing that maybe this was not going to be something that held forever. Uh, and then one thing was interesting after we left the hearing after it concluded. Uh, we looked at uh, Alan's case on the Indiana court website, and it turned out that uh, Prosecutor McClelland had actually made a motion in the case today, which, for whatever reason, he did not mention in court. 
And I will read the relevant portions here. Uh, Nicholas McClelland requests the court to prohibit the parties, counsel, law enforcement officials, court personnel, coroner, and family members from disseminating information or releasing any extrajudicial statements by means of public communication. So this is basically he's requesting a gag order. He's requesting that family members, he's requesting that attorneys and such not be allowed to talk about this case publicly anymore until the case concludes. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's certainly, I mean, uh, Libby's family, they've been sort of um, public advocates for her case. And uh, so this could affect them. Uh, law enforcement generally tends to stick to things like press conferences and, and official statements. So uh, that kind of, you know, and, and then the attorneys, you know, Basically, they don't want anyone going to the press and talking about it. Um, this does not the gag order does not mean that the press can't report on it. That's that's it, it's specifically binding the parties mentioned. Uh, you wouldn't, as we've said before in the past, gag orders uh, prior restraint could force media outlets to not report on a specific piece of information in specific cases, but that's not what this is. Right. Yeah. After the hearing. Uh, there was a stir in the media once we all got down to the, the bottom floor. Uh, you know, Libby's family is going to be leaving. Let's put cameras on them so we can ask them what they think. And instead of making any comments, they just very quickly left. So they obviously had been told that McClelland wanted a gag order. Yes. And they were respecting his wishes, even though as of this time of recording, that gag order has not been formally issued. It's just McClelland has requested one. Yes, and and as for Richard Allen, the person who all of this is sort of surrounding right now, um, he was escorted out. Uh, the judge asked us all to be seated until he has sort of been, you know, evacuated from the building, and um, he was kind of hauled out. His you know hands were folded. He's kind of waddling because of the shackles, and you know I, I thought I caught a little bit of a smile on his face at one point. I mean, he was talking with his lawyers, so that was probably why, but. They sort of walked him out, and that's the last we saw of him going through the doors. Then we all had to wait a minute, and then we were able to get up and, and leave. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a very interesting, it was an interesting day. I, I think the the comments about, mul- you know, multiple people being involved are certainly significant. I think that we're starting to see, though, um, you know, inklings of how this is going to go from the judge, from the defense, from the prosecution, uh, you know, the gag order could could spell some some differences in terms of how things will be handled from here on out. So it really feels like today marks the beginning of somewhat of a new phase of the case where we're not in speculation mode anymore. We're in trial mode. You know, we are moving towards a trial. Uh, could take a very long time. Sort of feels like March is not realistic, but we'll see. But we'll see. Uh, we will note that when they were discussing scheduling, uh, the defense attorney said, at least for the moment, they want to leave the March date on the calendar. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll obviously continue to follow this story, and we will be back with uh, any updates. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to the West Lafayette Public Library for allowing us to record in your conference room. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. 
If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.